It's good to be alive, isn't it? Great to be alive. Another day of life. Praise the Lord for another day of life. We need a snowblower up here after the third service. It's kind of fun up here. Every part of me wants to just go running across the stage and just slide on my chest all the way across right now. Just, I'll save it for tonight, guys, all right? <laughs> this is a great passage that we're looking at today. And uh, Peter is looking at a lot of new believers. Always keep this in context. He's looking at these Christians who are scattered about. And so this letter gets sent to them. And as they open up this letter, he knows who the audience is. Like each time I speak somewhere, I always think, who am I talking to? Where do they come from? What have they been through? How can I reach them? And so I often pray, Lord, help me to see like they see. And so Peter is writing this letter. He's fully aware of this group. And this group is loaded with a lot of new believers And many of the new believers are wives who have unsaved husbands. So think about this. As Peter writes this, the wives are saved and many of the husbands aren't. And so he's writing this letter to them and to the believers where both are saved. And he's giving this incredible information about how to remain married, what a biblical marriage looks like. He gives information to the wives and then he gives it to the husbands. And to be quite frank, It's one of the topics in our world today that our culture wants to spin off in a different direction. And even any time we use the word that's used here, it's easy for people to turn away and exit the room because it's a difficult word. Because instead of acknowledging it and understanding it and getting a biblical definition of it, we have chosen, the world has chosen to push back from it. Let me just say it this way. Men and women are different. Can I get an amen? We are different. And you know what? We can celebrate that. We are, men and women are equal. Can we celebrate that? We are equal. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God. Men and women have the same value in the eyes of God. Men and women can find their identity in the eyes of God. But we have different roles when it comes to marriage. So when you bring a marriage together, you have a husband and wife Equal in God's eyes, different, masculine and feminine. Roles are different. And so instead of fighting these, let's just look and see what God says, how they can be played out in our lives. Here's what I know with absolute certainty. When we obey God's word and we walk in obedience, our marriages will flourish because we obey God. And so as we address this issue today, what his word is, what it means for wives to submit to their husbands, and what it means for husbands to honor and respect, and in the same way as Jesus loved their wives, I think I'm asking you to hold on the whole way through and just let the Spirit of God illuminate the text and then apply that to your life. But we are different. We are uniquely different. And to set up this message, I just want to show you the difference between men and women with a funny satire that's written between a man and a woman who are meeting each other. Here's the difference between men and women. Let's say a guy named Fred is attracted to a woman named Martha. He asks her out to a movie. She accepts. They have a pretty good time. A few nights later, he asks her out to dinner. And again, they enjoy themselves. They continue to seek each other regularly, see each other regularly, and after a while, neither one of them is seeing anyone else. And then one evening, when they're driving home, a thought occurs to Martha, and without really thinking, she says it out loud. Do you realize, as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there is silence in the car. To Martha, it seems like a very loud silence. She thinks to herself, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's been feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Fred is thinking, gosh, six months. And Martha is thinking, but hey, I'm not sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I have time to think about whether I really want to keep going the way we are, moving steadily towards, I mean, where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? Are we heading towards marriage, towards children, towards a lifetime together? Am I ready for that level of commitment? Do I really even know this person? And Fred is thinking. So that means it was, let's see, February when we started going out. (laughs) 
which was right after I had the car at the dealer's, which means, let me check the odometer. Whoa, I'm way overdue for an oil change here. (laughs) And Martha is thinking, he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. Maybe he wants more from our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. Maybe he has sense, even before I sense it, that I was feeling some reservations. Yes, I bet that's it. And that's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his own feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. And Fred is thinking, and I'm going to have them look at the transmission again. I don't care what those morons say. It's still not shifting right. And they better not try to blame it on the cold weather this time. What cold weather? It's 87 degrees out. And this thing is shifting like a garbage truck. And I paid those incompetent thieves $600. And Martha is thinking, he's angry. And I don't blame him. I'd be angry too. (laughs) This is funny. I'm telling you, man. I feel so guilty putting him through this. But I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. And Fred is thinking, they'll probably say it's only 90-day warranty, scumballs. (laughs) And Martha is thinking, Maybe I'm just too idealistic, waiting for a knight to come riding up on his white horse when I'm sitting right next to a perfectly good person, a person I I enjoy being with, a person I truly do care about, a person who seems to truly care about me, a person who is in pain because of my self-centered schoolgirl romantic fantasy. And Fred is thinking, warranty? They want a warranty. I'll give them a warranty. I'll take their warranty and stick it right you know where. Fred! Martha says aloud, what, says Fred, startled. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says. (laughs) Her eyes beginning to brim with tears. Maybe, maybe I should have never, oh dear, I feel so. And she breaks down sobbing. What, says Fred? (laughs) I'm such a fool, Martha sobs. I mean, I know there's no night. I really know that. It's silly, there's no night. I know there's no horse. There's no horse, says Fred. (laughs) You think I'm a fool, don't you, Martha says. No, says Fred, glad to finally know the correct answer. It's just that I, it's just that I, I need, I need some time, Martha says. There's this 15 second pause while Fred is thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response, finally comes up with one that he thinks might work. Yes, he says. Martha, deeply moved, touches his hand. Oh, Fred, do you really feel that way? She says. What way? (laughs) That way, (laughs) that way about me, says Martha. Oh, says Fred, yes. Martha turns to face him and gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very nervous about what she might say next, especially if it involves a horse. (laughs) Alas. At last she speaks. Thank you, Fred, she says. Thank you, says Fred. (laughs) Then he takes her home and she lies on her bed, a conflicted, tortured soul, and weeps until dawn, whereas when Fred gets back to his place, he opens a bag of Doritos, (laughs) turns on the TV, and immediately becomes deeply involved in a rerun of a college basketball game between two South Dakota junior colleges. (laughs) This is so true. (laughs) That he's never heard of. A tiny voice in the far recesses of his mind tells him that something major was going on back there in the car, but he's pretty sure there's no way he would ever understand what. And so he figures it's better if he doesn't think about it. The next day, Martha will call her closest friend, or perhaps two of them, and they will talk about this situation for six straight hours in painstaking detail. They will analyze everything she said and everything he said, going over it time and time again, exploring every word, expression, gesture for nuances of meaning, considering every possible ramification. They will continue to discuss this subject off and on for weeks, maybe months, never reaching any definite conclusions, but never really bored with it either. Meanwhile, Fred, while playing racquetball one day with a mutual friend of his and Martha's, will pause just before serving, frown and say, Norm, did Martha ever own a horse? (laughs) And that's the difference between men and women. Amen? <laughs> oh. And if you don't think that's funny, there's something wrong with you. I'll sure take them out. 
All right, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. We're going to read what Peter has to say regarding marriage. And we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you need a Bible, keep your hand up and ushers will put one in your hand. But stand with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Keep in mind again, remember, Peter is writing this letter to many new believers of which the wife has been saved and the husband isn't saved. And so he's writing, and he's writing to a church. Keep in mind, husbands are saved and wives are saved. But predominantly, it's wives who are unsaved or saved and their husbands are unsaved. Read it with me. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. Ready, read. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is a great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You may have a seat. Let me begin by saying this. Biblical submission to your husband is an offering of surrender to Jesus. So in doing so, you are surrendering your will and say, Jesus, I will obey you, because ultimately that's who we're obeying when we walk in obedience. Let me just say a few things what this text doesn't say to remind us. Here's what it doesn't say. It has nothing to do with women not leading in the workplace, government, or society. It doesn't say that women have to submit to all men but their husbands. It doesn't say that men are superior to women. It doesn't say that you submit because he is deserving of it. It doesn't say husbands are to lord over their wives. There's no hint of inferiority or inequality between a husband and wife. Both are equal in God's sight. Both have as much value and worth, but uniquely different. Feminine brought into the relationship and masculinity, femininity, masculinity. However, there are different roles. And so he's going to unpack what that looks like in a biblical marriage. Look how he opens this up, because this phrase is critical to the context. Look at verse, chapter three, verse one. It says, wives in the what, what's it say? Same way submit. So we have to ask this question, in what same way? Where? Where is something done in the same way? How? When? Why does he say, wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands? What does he mean by that? So in the same way, he is, it's the submission of the Trinity. We believe that God is three in one. It's the submission of the Trinity. Jesus, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All equal, all God, all one in essence, However, they have different roles. And in the context, when Jesus walked on earth, he said this on occasion, not my will, but your will, Father, be done. He surrendered, he submitted. And if you look at the context that Pastor Mike looked at last week, it's by his stripes and by he was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus willingly surrendered his life, death on the cross, Why? Because he submitted to the Father's will for his life. And so Peter's opened his up and he says, ladies, in the same way. Same way as what? As Jesus. In the same way that Jesus surrendered. In the same way that Jesus submitted. In the same way that he did it and it was difficult. You must submit 
in a biblical way to your husbands. Jesus gave us life. And so why? Look, okay, here's why, okay? You, you might say, well, why should we do this? And look, look what it says. It says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word or are unsaved, they may be what over. What's it say? Want, come on, help me out. Read it. You got to see it for yourself. Don't just take, look at your Bibles. That's why we have them. This is important. This is critical text. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be what over? What's it say? One over without what? By the behavior of their wives. And so the reason, he's looking at this group and he's saying, if you want to see your husband come to Christ, he will come to Christ by your prayer. He will come to Christ by your gentle spirit. He will come to Christ because you're not manipulating or coercing him but you're living in such a way of surrendering your will. And we're going to look at what it means to submit. That way, he'll say, wow, you have something that I don't have. It's a beautiful picture. Here's what I know, and sometimes we don't think about this concept. Submission implies disagreement. It's not submission if there's always agreement. Like, if there was never disagreement, then you wouldn't say, I need to submit. You'd just say, I agree. I agree. So submission implies at some point in your marriage, guess what? You're not going to agree. And if, you, if you've never been there, then whew, I don't know what that's like. I don't. I, I love my wife dearly, and there are times she is right, and I am wrong. And it's by the grace of God that she prays and asks the Holy Spirit to convict me, and then I finally come to a conclusion. But we have disagreements. But the point is this, the submitting part is this. You submit because there is a disagreement in the relationship. So it won't be easy. Let me just say this to every husband out there before we unpack submission. Husbands should lead in such a way that her submission to you is a blessing. Tender, caring, protecting, loving, lifting up, building up caring for your wife in such a way that she doesn't do it because you are lording it over. It's not a dictatorship. It's a love affair. And she is following you because you are loving her. You know, the reason I follow God is not because I'm afraid of God. The reason I want to walk in obedience is not because I'm afraid of getting spit out. That's a fear-based belief system. The reason I follow God is because God loves me. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross for us. And I don't trust in God because I'm afraid that I'll be thrown into hell. Yes, that'll happen if I don't know him personally. But the reason I trust in God is because he's a loving God. So much he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross for us. And it's the same way in a marriage. We must be loving husbands so that our wives are willingly see that as a blessing to follow us. Because we love them. Not because they're afraid or coerced to do so. You must demonstrate a deep love, level of love and trust for her to feel that way too. Here's what submission isn't. I encourage you to take notes, by the way, or snap a photo of these. Here's what submission isn't. It does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. It doesn't say, well, I agree, I'll submit, you're right, I agree with everything. No. The point is this, she will not submit to his thinking about the most important thing in the world, which is God. She believes in God first, and she will stand on that ground. And so if there's any thinking that says you can't believe in God, she doesn't have to agree nor submit to that. Secondly, submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. It doesn't mean now that we're married, I'll do whatever you say. And I won't say anything. By the way, let me know how that one goes, by the way. It doesn't mean you can't think for yourself. She isn't frozen waiting to see what to do next. Her input is just as valuable. You know, when I think of my wife, Ann, she is so wise, godly. Man, I, I have just been blessed beyond blessing, just blessing upon blessing. I value what she says. And when she says, Jim, listen to me, my ears go in full attention when I'm walking in the spirit 
Because what she says, I want to add, I want to bring what I think, bring what she thinks, and then I'm responsible for the consequences that come as a result of the decision that's made. Submission, thirdly, is, does not mean avoiding every effort to change a husband. So it's not, because the very context of this passage is she's trying to win her husband over to the Lord. And so it's not like I'm, I'm, some, I'm, I'm avoiding every way to, to see him come to Christ. That's the purpose of her living her life out like this. So what do you do? You pray. You live out Jesus in front of him. You pray. You live out Jesus in front of him. You pray. And you hope beyond hope and believe beyond belief that God can do more than you ever thought or prayed about. And you continue to give him to God. And over time, here's what I know to be true. Wives, your soft heart will break his hard heart. So as you gently love, you gently follow, you gently care, he will begin to see there is something different Nagging will never win your man's heart over to Jesus. Fourthly, submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal spirituality primarily through her husband. A good husband strengthens and builds up his wife, but there's no codependency issues here between a wife and a husband. Hear me out. Ladies, men, our identity is in Jesus, not in anybody else. And we find our security, our value, and Christ alone, and our confidence comes because God lives in us. And by the way, from the foundation of the world, he marked you out, he predestined you out, he chose you, he adopted you. You and I should feel extra special love knowing the creator of the world is our Father God that will never leave us nor forsake us. So no matter what happens on this side of eternity, we're in good hands. That's where our identity is. Ladies, it's not in your husband. Your world should not be turned upside down and you have to dig a hole beside him because you don't know what to do because your security was placed in him or your dependency was in him. It's in Jesus Christ, hear me out, alone. Now listen, yes, you have a relationship. Yes, it'll be hard. Yes, you will be broken. Yes, there will be grief. I will grieve over the loss of my wife that that would happen. But my dependency isn't in her, nor is Anne's dependency in me. Fifthly, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Jesus. She is a follower of Jesus before she is a follower of her husband. Jesus demonstrated that. He grew in wisdom, stature, and his relationship with God and man. So you must always answer to Jesus in this role of submission. Sixthly, submission does not mean that a wife acts out of fear. Submission is free. Pastor Mike covered this last week. It's not coerced. The Christian woman is a free woman. She's not a slave to her husband. I don't follow God because I'm afraid of God. I follow God because I love him. And so you should not follow out of fear. If I don't follow him, then he'll leave. And, and so I'm just going to follow him because he's going to leave. And if I, don't, if, I don't, if I don't do this for him, then he's going to find someone else. If you're acting out of fear, submission never acts out of fear. It acts out of love. If you base it on that, listen, you will find your place in a very, very, self in a very, very dark place. Seventh, submission does not follow her husband into sin. This is a big one. And here's what I mean by this. It grieves the wife when a husband leads to sinful ways and longs to take her with him and leaves her with one response, but not to follow him because she must follow her king, Jesus. And so listen, wives, you don't have to follow your husband into sin. You can say, baby, I love you and I'm committed to the end with you and I will walk with you and I will be here and I will always be here, but I love my God too much to sin against him and I can't do this with you. 
It's your soft heart response that will break his hard and calloused heart. Always remember, husbands, that your wife flourishes most when she can follow you joyfully because you are leading her to Jesus. It is, listen to me, it is a privilege to be able to lead our wives. It's not a duty. When I marry couples, I will often say this. In fact, I do it most of the time. The bride will be here and the husband, future husband will be here. And I'll say this to the husband. I just want to let you know that what she's doing here is pretty significant. She is taking your name. She is giving up her name that had value put into it, that her dad and her mom poured into it. And she brought that into this relationship. And if mom and dad are there and I know them, I said, they, they invested a lot. They taught her what, who Jesus was and they showed her what it means to love. And, and she is willingly, I'll look at him, she has willingly given up her name to take your name. And now your responsibility is pick up the baton from mom and dad and to add value to the name that she once had so that when she walks out in public, that the new name that she has that carries your name has value, has integrity, has godliness. So that when she writes her new name, she is proud, as proud as she was when she wrote it when she wasn't married because it has great value. So husbands, you need to raise the bar and live in such a way that she is willingly taking your name, willingly following you, and she wants to do it joyfully. So I often say to guys, way before they get married, guys, begin to become the best version of Jesus as possible you can be right now. So that when she comes together, she's like, oh man, my name in public, my name was said before, this is what it meant. Now I got your name. And the hope is that when she gets your name, it has the same value as her name and you build upon it. That's when a woman is willingly open to following her husband. And Peter says this in verse 2 through 4. Look what he says in chapter 3. He says, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward. What's the word with an A? Adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who had put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. He addresses the importance of an inner beauty. I love the Greek word for adorn or adornment. It's the Greek word cosmos. It's interesting because that's where we get the English word cosmetic. And he says, don't depend on cosmetic for your beauty. Your beauty should come from an inward you, the inner self, not the exterior self alone. One translation said it this way, and I really liked it. It said, don't depend on things like fancy hairdos or gold and jewelry or expensive clothes to make you look beautiful. Be beautiful in your heart by being gentle and quiet. That kind of beauty will last, and God considers it very special. He's speaking the word adorn of a well-ordered inside. The word adorn has the concept of a well-ordered inside. Don't make your outward appearance the center of your universe or your top priority. Now, let me just pull away and speak to this for a second. Some would say this and look at this and translate this and say then we shouldn't wear jewelry and we shouldn't braid our hair and we shouldn't go to hairstylists and we shouldn't have fun. And they'll even, and I'll say, well, if you go with that logic, then you shouldn't wear clothes. And that one won't work, okay? <laughs> the logic breaks down. The point is this, that yes, like I love when my wife wears something and she puts it on and she fixes up her hair and, 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 and then she'll come out and say, Jim, what do you think? I say, baby, you look good. I'm attracted to my wife physically. And eyes, for men, by the way, we are visually wired. 
And so it's perfectly fine. In fact, for some ladies, it's fun. Let them enjoy that. Do your nails. I love when Hannah and Ann can go out and they get their nails and their toes done. And there's been a time or two they said, you want, are you kidding? I'm not going there. There's just no way. I just stomped on somebody's toes, literally, didn't it? Some man out there. Um, I'll quit, by the way. Anyhow, just beautiful. Just So, yes, dress, but don't depend on that. It's the idea of this inner beauty, this, this gentle spirit that's in you. The inner beauty never fades, but cosmetics do, don't they? Don't you wish you could, ladies, don't you wish you could do your hair one morning and it'd be good for the rest of the year? Wouldn't you love to put mascara on? It was like, it would, it would be good even after you cried. Wouldn't you love to just put on whatever you put on? I don't know what it's all called, but Ann does, and you put it on. Wouldn't you just love to stand in front of the mirror and just be able to put that on like, and, and never have to do it again? He says, don't depend on that for beauty. It should be an inward beauty, not an outward appearance. There is a beauty that is sweeter and better, and it will never perish. Think about that for a second. I love the translation that's there for this this word, gentle spirit. What is a gentle spirit? It's translated meek. And in the original language, this word, a gentle, quiet spirit, means your power under God's control. I love that. So ladies, Peter's saying, yes, be strong. And there are many, my wife is a strong woman. But it's this picture of your power under God's control. It's submitting to him. It's being meek. It's saying, yeah, I'm going to bring to the table what I think is important, Jim. And I'm going to tell you what I think. But this week, we had a decision to make. And we were talking about it. And and we both brought it to the table. And that day, my wife texted me. And it was from her. And I saw it was from Ann. And she said, Jim, I want you to know this. I trust you. Man, I'll run through a brick wall when she tells me that. She says, I'll trust you. There is power when you trust and say, okay, I trust you with this decision. I will follow you with this decision. We talked about it. I trust you. That's the picture of a strong woman taking her power and putting it under God's control. The goal is a tranquil, undisturbed spirit. Then he says, like Sarah. Why like Sarah and the holy women of the past? Like why, why, do you, why do you pick Sarah out of the Old Testament people? And by the way, Abraham was no saint. And even though God blessed him and, and he would have many, many, many generations of people, he was no saint, and it, neither am I and neither are you. And it's only by God's grace and his mercy that we're able to do any good. And the truth is this, is the reason he said that about her, think about it. Abraham lied to authorities when people would ask him because they were interested in his wife and he wanted a place to sleep, he told the authorities that that Sarah was his sister twice. Think about Sarah's life. Abraham had a baby to another woman. So how can you follow? And he's saying, listen, listen, forgiveness, grace, commitment, loyalty. But here's what I know to be true. When Sarah was 90 years old, she also had a baby. She hoped beyond hoped, hope against hope, that God would be good on his promises. It's been a long time since there's been a baby born at Greencroft. It just doesn't happen. (laughs) And that happened. She hoped against hope. So he says, be like her. What is it about her then? She followed God. She submitted to her husband. She trusted in the Lord, and she prayed every day, God, hope against hope. Please, God, save his soul. God, I believe that you're good on your promise. God, I believe that you can do immeasurable more than I'm asking or imagining or praying right now. And God, I fully trust you in your word, even though I'm 90 years old. If you say I'm going to have a baby, I don't know how, but I trust you. And so what is your 90-year-old baby thing in your life that you're looking at your husband If God could cause a woman to conceive at 90, then he can cause that thing that you desired to conceive in your marriage. And he's saying hope against hope. So he talks to the husbands. And you think, oh boy, he didn't say much to the husbands. Oh, yes, he did. 
Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What does it mean to honor and respect? A few months ago, I wrote these thoughts, and a lot of it came from 1 Peter. These are my own personal thoughts on this text, and these are my personal desires that I pray over marriages at Grace Community Church regularly. These are my words, and you don't have to agree with them, but I believe this is what a godly marriage should look like. I wrote this. We are quickly losing some of the very things that make us uniquely different and intrinsically good. I long to see the day where a man opens the doors for his precious lady, not because he is better, but because he has a love and respect for her. Where he protects and defends her, not because he is domineering, but because that's what men can do well. Where he cherishes and spoils his bride, not because he wants something from her, but because she is the most precious person in his life. Where he holds her hand and leads the way. Not because he is controlling her, but because he loves her and is willing to take the hits for her. Where he picks up the tab at the restaurant, not because she can't, but because he wants her to know that she is worthy of it. Where he doesn't push for sex before marriage, not because he doesn't love her, but because he honors her chastity. Where he is the spiritual leader of the home, not because he wants to lord it over her, but because it's God's design for the marriage. Where he tenderly touches and cares for her, not because he is weak, but because he is strong. God has made us uniquely different, equally valuable, with uniquely different roles. We are masculine and she is feminine. And when we both value and understand the differences, it is a symphonic, majestic, and godly masterpiece. The truth is this, is that if we're really honest, we've let culture indirectly impact the way our marriages are tuned and fine-tuned. Let me demonstrate with G.I. Joe and Barbie. (laughs) G.I. Joe sees Barbie and says, woo, baby. And Barbie sees G.I. Joe and says, looking good, dude, in the outfit. Mm -hmm. I like you, I like you, let's get married. So they get married. And what happens then when they're married? The biblical foundation that's said is husband and wife become one. They're one. Two become one. And the picture is this, that she is by his side, making decisions, talking to each other, flexing it out, making sure they come to a conclusion. But he ultimately is one step ahead. He's leading the way. And she follows him because he is leading well. And so the picture is this. He is the head of the household, and she is under his leadership because he is leading well. And so that's our responsibility. I say it this way. May your wife always look down the road and see you out in front, and she says, that's the way we should go. But here's what happens. Because of culture. The husband reneges on his leadership ability. And the wife, because he's not leading or because she wants to lead, she becomes the head of the family. And you know what happens to that relationship? It doesn't go well. Why? Because this isn't God's intention for a marriage. His intention is it's the husband is the head And they walk side by side, and he is one step ahead, and she is walking hand in hand with him. And when it gets mixed up, I will tell you what happens. There is destruction. The enemy has a stronghold. There is conflict upon conflict upon conflict. And so the picture that Peter paints here, he says... Ladies, look at the holy women of the past. Become a daughter of Sarah. 
and do as she did. She willingly submitted to her husband, and God blessed this so much that nation after nation and generation after generation of people came from them. So he says to the husband, in the same way, same way of what? Be considered the same way Jesus did. One of my heartfelt desires is to see men be tender warriors. Listen to me. Then he says, this word that jumps out in our culture screams, and treat them with respect, guys. Honor them as the weaker partner as heirs with you. And so we hear that word, not weaker in terms of intellect or even capacities for leadership. So what's the word honor mean? The Greek definition of honor in this context means this. You should prefer her and put her needs above your needs. That's the picture. It's like, baby, I will drop my interests and place your interests. And it's like, where do you get that from? In the same way that Jesus in the great incarnation passage, what did he do? He submitted himself and he became a man when he was God and surrendered to the will of his father in the same way we, he placed our interests above his own. It is a beautiful picture of a godly relationship. Honor means to prefer her. It means to put her first. It means to, that she's the best. It means her interests above your, it means that you cherish her. It means that you spoil her. It means that you lead her. It means that you protect her. It means you take bullets in the head for her. And she knows that no matter what comes her way, she can depend on you to be there for her because she is the most precious earthly thing outside of Jesus Christ to you. And when a woman knows that her man will fight to hell and back with her, she will follow him anywhere. Guys, we have some work to do. So what does it mean as the weaker? Sometimes in our culture, it's like, we're not weaker. Like, I don't even like being called the weaker. What does it mean? Weaker I believe in the context here can be demonstrated three ways. The first one is this. She's physically weaker. Husbands, now this is a general statement, can generally overpower their wives. Sure, strength. A husband's normally stronger than his wife. Secondly, I believe it's a position of authority in the marriage. He just spent six verses about submitting to his leadership. You're not the head. He is the head. And thirdly, their emotional sensitivity. Men, we need to be better listeners. But what are we wired by nature? The word bara, the, the, if you look in the Old Testament, you look at the, the word for Adam, you look at the word what man is, the word, our name, men, in the Hebrew means builders, creators, cultivators. So by nature, we are made to build so when someone comes to us and they, they propose something that's wrong, what do we do? I'm going to fix it. And so she comes and, and you're thinking, well, just do that. But she has been distraught. Remember the story I opened up with? <laughs> so here, guys, here's what you should do. I'm serious. When your wife knows that what she is saying is so important that you will stop whatever you're doing and listen to her, she feels empowered because she knows that her words mean more to you than your own words coming out of your mouth. You get that, guys? We got to be better listeners. So take it in. There's an emotional sensitivity and connection takes place, plus... To be quite honest, my wife has some good things to say. And if I'm opening my mouth, I don't hear them because I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. You ever get in a conversation with someone like that? You feel like, I can't wait to tell this person this. And as soon as you start, they're like, what about what I said? So be sensitive to that, guys. So what does it mean? How, how, what, what, what does it mean 
to lead her and to cherish her and to honor her. It means make decisions with your wife. You weren't given this role because you make better decisions, by the way. Amen to that? Many are saved because of the wisdom of their wives. I love seeing Anthony and Shelly. You guys are a picture of this text, praise God. I mean, it's, and Anthony, I love the way that you're stepping in and, and leading, watching your sons come to Christ. And, and Shelly, you prayed all these years for your husband. And like, like praise God, we celebrate that today. <laughs> so make decisions with your wife. Secondly, the husband is never told to demand submission from his wife. That's hers to give, not to demand, guys. Did you hear me? Thirdly, you are to use this position to serve her first and not get your own way. Humble yourself. Fourthly, spiritual leadership is not a license to do what you want to do, but empowerment to do what you ought to do. A tender warrior, a gatekeeper, a provider, a protector, a lover. And fifthly, Submission is not about what women can or can't do, but about what men are called to do and most don't. I love this definition of Tony Evans. He's one of my favorite writers. I know what many of you women are thinking, and I grieve with you. You're thinking, if I let him lead, he will destroy us and we will be doomed. But we must remember this, and Tony Evans said this. I believe this is so good. He said this. Spiritual leadership is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man in the face. (laughs) Come on, that's good. And ladies, you like ducking on that one, don't you? (laughs) So he is responsible for the consequences. There's a heavy responsibility that's there, guys. And we have heavy responsibility. And we need to lead well because ultimately you can take your family down a dark path if you don't lead them well. We have heavy responsibility here. Okay? If we don't do that, guess what happens? Here's what happens. Listen, man. Look what he says. He says in verse 7, he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So if we don't lead well, guys, hear me out. Here's what takes place. Here's the huge consequences that comes if we don't lead well in this marriage. Your prayers are hindered because your relationship is out of sync with God. Here's what that means. You know what happens? When you go to pray, if there's a rift and you're not leading well in this family, when you pray, there is literally a ceiling towel over your head. There is a barrier between you and God and it is hindered because of your stubborn, sinful way. And know who fills that? Everybody does in the family. So listen, guys, tender, surrender, love, protect, guide, and care. Secondly, another consequence. If you do this, you are enabled to live together. Like, woo, we can make it, baby. It's this picture of live and grow together. There's harmony. There's this masterpiece, two becoming one. It's, it's the way God intended it. And thirdly, I believe the most important of all this because I believe that marriages are designed to make disciples. And I've said this before, but I believe the primary purpose of a husband is to prepare his wife to stand before the Bema seat of Christ as an unblemished bride so that she can hear well done. That's what it says in Ephesians. Our responsibility is is to help our wives become more like Jesus and present herself to Christ at the Bema seat. That's That's our responsibility to do so. And if we do that well, then thirdly, this is what I believe is the benefit. You win a cynical world to Jesus Christ. And why? Because our marriages ought to be the most convincing apologetic for our cynical world. That two people from different places, different ideals potentially, different families, different agendas, same God can come together in harmony and walk and live and love 
until death shall separate them or God take them home. And the world says, how in the world could that ever, how can you remain married all those years? Because Jesus is central to everything. That will win our cynical world to Jesus Christ. You see, understanding our roles and living them in biblical obedience opens the communication lines and blessings with God the Father. We're going to close in prayer, but it's going to be a different moment. So I'm going to ask you, if you're here today and you're married, I'm just going to ask you to stand. Would you please stand? In the South Auditorium, if you're watching via the live stream, stand in your living room, but don't stand in your car. <laughs> if your spouse is beside you, I just want you to grab their hand. Or maybe you put, what's called, put your arm around their shoulder. And I'm, I want you to bow your heads, and I want to pray. Please, Father God, I pray that you would unite these couples as one. I pray, God, that there would be a, a humility that has never been there before. I pray that there would be a surrender to your will. I pray that there would be a willingness for the husbands to place and prefer the interests of his wife above his own. I pray, God, that you would break down all the strongholds and all the chains that are causing this relationship and leading it to destruction. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would go to the parts of the heart where there's stubbornness and you would break it. I pray, God, for unusual wisdom. I pray for unusual love. I pray for a willingness to chase after you even when it's hard. And God, I pray that you'll gift and you'll give men wisdom that know you. I pray that they will rely on the Holy Spirit and that God is in you. I pray, God, that you would speak through them. And I pray that there's unconfessed sin, that they would confess it, both husbands and wives. And I pray that marriages would flourish, not just in the first six months, not in the first year, but even in the 66th year. I pray, God, that Grace Community Church in the surrounding area would be impacted and be one to Christ because husband and wife are living in biblical obedience to you. And God, make it fun because it can be. Restore the wonder when they first met. Renew the passion that was fresh. And I pray that men would pursue like they used to pursue. And I pray that, that there would just be this commitment like never before. I pray for a fresh spirit to break out into marriages. Please, God. And God, we ask that you would do immeasurably more than I'm asking or imagining now. And may the world see that it is not only possible, but it is enjoyable to stay married to the bride that's beside us. We ask this in the strong and powerful and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.